Airlines Confidential with Ben Valdanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Aerodata, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. Aerodata is a Garmin company. Sidley Austin, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies. Visit sidley.com aviation. And Seabury Securities, global reach, global scale. seaburysecurities.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Airline peeps, welcome to another edition of Airlines Confidential. This is Chris Chimes. And this is Ben Baldanza. We're heading into the final weeks of a very busy summer travel season, and there's lots to talk about. Ben, we have a tag team for our guests this week, Mayor Sandy Stimson from the city of Mobile, Alabama, and Chris Curry, the president of the Mobile Airport Authority. They're going to talk to us in a few minutes about how to move an airport and move it into the city and not away from the population. But first, a few news items, starting with more quarterly earnings reports. And this headline's from Europe, which really surprised me. Despite the absolute mess since the spring at Amsterdam Schiphol Airport and to a lesser degree, but still at Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris, Air France KLM reported its first quarterly profit since 2019. What do you think about that? I was shocked at that, that they announced a profitable quarter, given all we've been reading and talking about on the show, especially at Schiphol. Now, you know, they didn't break down, at least in what I saw, Air France versus KLM. So it's possible that KLM had a loss given what was going on at Schiphol and maybe Air France didn't suffer from that as much. Charles de Gaulle didn't have as many problems. Maybe Air France's network is less exposed in certain ways, probably more Africa flying, for example, things like that. But that said, Air France KLM as a group did report a quarterly profit, which is amazing for them. Interestingly, and I guess not surprisingly, they repeated many of the themes we've heard from the U.S. airlines reporting, Chris, which is profits driven primarily on lower volume but higher fares. And that's sort of the tonality that we've heard from many U.S. airlines. Now we're hearing it from the European airlines, which says if there's a drop-off as we go into the fall, everyone's going to have an interesting story to tell. Well, and compared to what we talked about last week with Wizz Air's big loss out of Europe, it kind of underscores what you talked about with regard to fares and maybe some carriers are pricing too low given the demand but again how long is that going to last with regard to the demand as we head into the to the fall so let's see and then the FAA is poised to give Boeing the green light ban to resume delivery of 787 Dreamliners which has been on hold since May 2021 lots of happy people including suppliers to Boeing airlines waiting to take these aircraft Boeing employees and shareholders how do you see this going? 
Well, it looks like more momentum for Boeing coming off the uh, Farnborough Air Show where they did better than Airbus in terms of selling more and sort of had their first real rebound in sales from any air show since the crashes of the 737 Maxes. So Boeing had a positive Farnborough Air Show against a relatively muted Farnborough Air Show, but still, if you had to declare a winner, they would be. Now they get the 787 back. The way this is going to work, as I understand it, Chris, is that the FAA will approve the plane coming back and to, for them to deliver, but the FAA, at least for some period of time, is still going to inspect every single 787 that's being delivered to make sure that it meets sort of the, the goals of why they put the deliveries on hold in the first place. Yeah, I saw that, and then I saw another note from Morgan Stanley, which... They characterize this as being worth about $17 billion short-term in revenue as these deliveries start uh, popping in. There are 120 currently waiting to be delivered or almost finished, uh, according to this note, with an expectation of 20 deliveries in 2022, 66 in 23, and 110 in 2024. So uh, as we talked about, there's growing demand for international routes as well, so I'm, I'm guessing there are lots of anxious airlines ready to take these aircraft. Well, I think that's right. You know, in the wide-body airplane world, the competition is tight between Boeing and Airbus, but there are just fewer models and fewer ways to sort of execute a long-haul big airplane strategy. And within that, the 787 is so important to that. So again, going back to Boeing stringing together a couple of momentum-building events is good for that company, and we'll see whether or not they can add a few more things before the year ends out. Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Sidley Austin, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies transforming the skies. From the ramp to the boardroom, Sidley provides the broadest range of legal services to clients on the most critical issues facing our industry today. Sidley combines unmatched experience with top-tier capabilities across a vast global footprint. Visit sidley.com slash aviation for more information. And airline operations teams know that load planning for any operation is complex and time-consuming. Aerodata can help. Aerodata's load planning solutions computerize and automate the entire load planning process, streamlining workloads, optimizing load distribution, enabling airlines to maximize their payloads, and ultimately eliminating potential delays by flagging flights that require extra attention. The solutions also integrate with reservation systems, cargo vendors, baggage scanning, container operations, and more. Visit aerodata.co to learn more and connect with your Aerodata team. Ben, we've talked about this a few times, including just a few minutes ago, but both of us expressing doubts that the current airfare levels are sustainable after the heavy demand of summer travel. But I saw some data this week that showed average airfares 60 days ago 
let's go back to mid-June, at about $320. They're already down to $260 currently. Now, that's good news for consumers, and there's also good news for airlines and that the oil prices are declining. But give us some Ben wisdom about these trends. Well, airline planners in general, Chris, tend to joke about September being the only six-week month of the year because it really starts in the middle of August. And so uh, as we're recording this, we're about there in the middle of August or getting close to the middle of August. So summer is almost over. And I hear and see that fuel prices are down, but airlines aren't quick to lower fares when fuel prices drop if demand is there. If you're looking to sort of credit why are airfares down, I don't know that I give that credit to lowering fuel prices because if airlines didn't have to lower the fares, they still wouldn't. They would just take that difference. I think what we're really seeing here, Chris, is what we talked about earlier and I've been worried about for a while, that as we move out of the summer peak, that the leisure demand weakens Not as many people are traveling for vacation, kids go back to school, things like that. Also, the demand that is left for leisure is probably more price sensitive. One of the strange things, strangely positive things the industry dealt with this summer was an almost price inelastic leisure demand. I don't want to take that too far. But even with relatively high fares, there was a lot of leisure demand which many people think is the result of two years of lots of people just not traveling. But when we get into the fall, that natural price sensitivity of airline customers come back. And as we've talked about multiple times on this show, business traffic, which normally takes up some of that void when you get into the fall, is still only running at 75 or 80 percent of the volume of 2019. Maybe they are paying higher rates, but you take all that together, it suggests that Unit revenue is going to be under pressure, especially for the bigger airlines that carry lots of corporate traffic traditionally. And we're starting to see that already in the 320 to 260 that you pointed out, Chris. I think as we get into September proper and look at what the September, October, November month period before we start getting into holiday travel again, Um, We're going to have to see and whether or not some airlines, many airlines actually that produce profitable second quarters, whether they're going to be able to repeat that in the third quarter. Yeah. And if I misstated the question, I want to make sure I was clear. I I don't think that the lowering of oil prices has anything to do with fares, but it just somewhat minimizes the impact of lowering revenue because fares are coming down. At least at least the trend line on oil is going the same direction too versus crossing somewhere. Yeah, and I mean, on a personal level, we're planning my daughter's wedding next spring and I, we had like family and friends already looking at airfares this summer. I'm like, no, 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 <laughs> let's wait. <laughs> um, I, think, uh, I think we can watch that trend line go down a bit. 
I think that's right, Chris. Well, coming up, our chat with the mayor and airport director from Mobile, Alabama, about their big plans for a new airport. But before that, a reminder that this week's show is brought to you by Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is delivering industry-leading sustainability, mature dispatch reliability, and world-class operating costs. Now with the GTF Advantage engine for the Airbus A320neo family, the best is getting even better. Learn more at pwgtf.com slash advantage. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by AeroData, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. AeroData is a Garmin company. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. We're very excited to have two guests this week with us from the beautiful city of Mobile, Alabama. We've got Mayor Sandy Stimson and Chris Curry, the president of the Mobile Airport Authority. We're going to talk about their plans to relocate the Mobile Airport and all that's going into that. So Chris and Mayor Stimson, welcome to Airlines Confidential. It was great to be with you. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. We always start our conversations with very brief self-introductions, so if you can let our listeners know what you do and a little bit about your role in this project. So, Chris, uh, this is Sandy Stimson. I'm the mayor of Mobile, have been since 2013. The city of Mobile is approximately uh, about 190,000 people. A couple of things we're known for is the birthplace of Mardi Gras, the NFL draft starts in Mobile because of the Senior Bowl, and we may be the only place in North America where Navy warships and commercial aircraft are built in the same city. But I'd also tell you that there's nowhere else in the country does there exist a top 10 seaport, which right up the street, there's an international airport and directly next to two interstates, five class railroads, and 15,000 miles of inland waterways. So I think that should frame who I am and and the opportunity that the city of Mobile has. And I'll add, you're a very effective advocate and representative for the city of Mobile. Chris, tell us about yourself. Yes, thank you. I'm Chris Curry, president of the Mobile Airport Authority. I've been with the airport almost five years. The airport authority owns and operates three airports to a commercial service, Mobile International and Mobile Regional Airport, and one general aviation airport, St. Elmo Airport. I've been in the industry about 40 years. Well, it's great to have you both with us. Thank you. Let me start with Mayor Simpson. The topic for this show came about over a dinner that you and Chris Chimes had back in January. Please tell our listeners about what you're in the midst of doing in Mobile with the airport. Well, Ben, uh, that conversation was explaining to him that the challenge that we had and that we recognized years ago was that our airport, what we call Mobile Regional Airport, was only capturing about 50% of the expected traffic uh, that should come through that airport. And having previously been on the Chamber of Commerce, well, we've been trying to fix that problem Uh, for 20 plus years and the whole time we've been losing employments to airports in uh, the Panhandle of Florida and then to Mississippi. And finally, it gets to a point where you're trying to fix something and it doesn't uh, respond. 
then you realize this thing is broken and we've got to go in a completely different direction. And as we started really looking outside of the box, we realized that, you know, we have another FAA approved airport, which was a downtown airport, uh, a former Air Force base called Brooklyn, where we were doing MRO repairs at that time for, for VT uh, Aerospace. Anyway, we realized that, you know, maybe we need to move this airport to downtown. And it was after that initial thought that, you know, is this a possibility that we uh, started engaging in the, a real conversation of what would it take to do that? And of course, that was the beginning of it, realizing what we had was not working. We had probably two thirds of what it was going to take to change airports. And so let's get on with it. And so really that's why it started. And as we look at Brooklyn, the difference is, is that the downtown airport is in the epicenter of the population in a two county area, whereas the regional airport is right on the western edge of the population. So we realized that we would be capturing more passengers that were going into the panhandle than we would if we continued to try to fix uh, the regional airport. So Chris Curry, as the airport executive, what exactly does this mean for you and your team? How do you marshal the resources to do things simultaneously, You know, safely operate one airport while you make plans to kind of build or reconstruct and move to another facility? So outside of a lot of work, <laughs> it, it, allows, uh, it allows my board, my team and I to be part of a transformational project that we feel will put Mobile on the map in the aviation space for many years to come. We have a very lean staff to cover three airports that are at least 45 minutes apart. Uh, it is important that we maintain attention to detail and understand the requirements of each customer at each airport while at the same time providing accurate and timely information to our tenants. Communication is the key uh, with all of our stakeholders and supporters. Well, very few airports, as you know, are being built in the U.S., but when they've been built or relocated, the trend has been to move them away from the population centers. We saw this in Denver when Stapleton was closed and they opened the new airport that the first time I was there, I thought I was driving to Kansas. And then in Chicago, you have close in Megsfield that many people know only because it's where the Microsoft flight simulator started. Right. And that was closed. And the far south, south side Piatone Airport in Chicago was killed off as a boondoggle. So how did a plan to move the Mobile Airport closer to the city get approved when you're really bucking the trend that every other city has done? Well, that's that's a great question. I'll answer part of it. Maybe Chris will weigh in also. But first, we we approached FAA and asked them if it was possible and when we asked the question, uh, there were several people, a United States congressman was there and all, and they kind of looked at us and they said, after a pregnant pause, they said, well, yes, but most people are trying to do, uh, to move them to the outskirts of the city. And so what you're saying is exactly right. But as we look at Brooklyn, uh, unlike maybe some of the other downtown 
some of the downtown airports you're referring to, one of our approaches comes in across Mobile Bay. So not every plane that's coming in has to fly, you know, right over the downtown area, you know, which makes a little bit of difference from one perspective. And another thing that we realized was that we have a huge project going on with the deepening and widening of the channel for the uh, Port of Mobile. And the, the increase in uh, commerce through the port is going to directly impact the opportunity to take advantage of it when uh, Brooklyn is up and running as a commercial airport because of the transfer of freight, let's say, from uh, ship to airplane. So, you know, that's just a, a couple of things that come to my mind. But also, a lot of our citizens realized that why were they having to drive all the way to the Panhandle of Florida or into Mississippi if, in fact, by relocating the airport, that we can have lower fares and more direct flights, then, you know, this is something that we should do. So it's been with citizen support that we've been able to take on this project. So let's pull on that thread a bit. You mentioned your conversations with the FAA, but you know, tell us about the regulatory process, both at the federal level and local. Uh, what have been the biggest hurdles? And what do the airlines who serve Mobile think about this? Chris Curry, you take that. Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll chime in to, to add on to the mayor's comments. Is um, it, it wasn't easy. I mean, first we had to convince the FAA and then second is also the citizens of the region. So we hired an outside consultant uh, to perform a feasibility study. Uh, the results of that study demonstrated the upside of moving the airport. And as the mayor said, it brought the airport closer to the people and also the port of Mobile. In addition, it allows us to take advantage of our transportation network, which includes two interstates within five miles. As to the air carrier's reaction, they consider that a game changer. To have an airport that centrally located uh, would certainly help them because it would increase the amount of employments at the airport. Another thing that I would add to what Chris just said, though, is that when he talks about the proximity of the airport being within five miles of two interstates, uh, the I-10 east-west corridor, it's one traffic light between I-10 and access to Brooklyn. And so you're immediately off the interstate straight into the airport, which our citizens thinks that would be a huge benefit. The other thing is, is that we had very influential political leaders across the state, from the governor to our uh, senators, uh, US, U.S. senators and congressmen that all saw the potential opportunity that was being created by, let's say, the conversation, and they bought into it and were willing to use their influence to help push this ball forward, which has been very, very helpful. So getting approval to do something and actually doing it are two different things, of course. So can you tell us the timeline for the actual relocation and who's helping you with the logistics and planning of this major event? Okay, so, so the timeline is to have the terminal open around September, October of 2024. And with a project this large, uh, from the airport perspective, we reached out to several international aviation consultants to help us through that. So 
Uh, we went through a delivery method called progressive design build, hired on a program manager, and then brought on board an all-star team that has a lot of international experience and, and experience in building terminals. Uh, so we feel um, we feel like they're, they're going to be able to get us there. Well, you got to build the terminals, but you have to build the runways too, or are those already there? The runways are already in place through the FAA AIP program. Uh, we renovated our longest runway last year, which is 9,518 feet. We have a secondary runway that's about 7,500 feet. Uh, this project will include some extra apron work. Uh, so we're working through the FAA to get uh, those additional pieces that are part of the terminal project. So is the MRO facility and also the Airbus facility, are they already using these runways? Or is this an active facility, Brooklyn, and some other kind of way right now? We actually have two MROs, Continental Motors and ST Aerospace, along with Airbus, and they've been using the infrastructure for years. So although the infrastructure is a little bit old because there's still some remnants from the old Air Force base, uh, we have a very aggressive capital improvement plan that we're working with the FAA to consistently upgrade our facilities. Well, let me ask Chris, once this airport is operational and up and running with the terminals and everything, what's going to happen to the current regional airport? That's a very good question. The current regional airport will most likely convert to a great corporate and general aviation facility. The FAA has invested in those facilities for decades and is currently the home of Airbus, Space and Defense, and also the Coast Guard training units. So we think their role will be everything except uh, commercial service operations. I would add to that if we could, though, uh, the airport, the regional airport has a footprint of about 3,200 acres. And so it's conceivable that there will be all kind of uh, economic development opportunities you know, associated with being that close proximity to a fully functional airport. And are you going to take steps to uh, kind of eliminate the opportunities for commercial service there as you try to move all the traffic to the new airport? Yes, commercial service will, will be gone. We expect that one day the regional airport will be open, the next day is closed, and all commercial services move downtown. Got it. For people who are familiar with the DFW Love Field fight, I mean, there were lots of people who advocated that you know Love Field should have been bulldozed years ago to force everyone to DFW, but it sounds like you're putting in a plan to move all that traffic. So, Mr. Mayor, you hinted at a few of these things in your conversation, but you know this airport project is part of a very dynamic economic development uh, and growth plan for your city. You've got lots of things happening with Airbus there, as well as the seaport. You know, what's been the trick in securing support, investment, and success? So early on, we cast what I would say was a very bold vision for the direction that the city of Mobile wanted to go in. But uh, not only did we cast a vision, I would say, for, which really encompasses all of our citizens and improving the quality of life here, but we had, as I said, other influential political leaders buy into that. And so as we've kind of checked off some of these things that once upon a time people thought were not possible to do, they started realizing 
looks like this thing's going in the right direction. And so like so many projects, once you start building momentum, you have more people willing to get aboard. You know, and so when you look at Mobile right now with the growth opportunities of what Airbus is doing, they're getting ready to uh, approach doubling the number of airplanes they build on a monthly basis here. And so with that increased productivity, that we have an Australian shipbuilding company that's been building aluminum warships that's now just started building steel ships. And it's known as one of the most efficient shipyards in the country. And so, you know, success begets success. And uh, many of our corporate citizens are seeing uh, unprecedented growth and they see the opportunity for what's happening with the deepening and widening of this channel. And so I would say it's a combination of, of many things, but it comes down to having, I'd say, not just the right political leadership, but also the leadership in the business community that understands this is a multi-generational opportunity to do some things by working together that otherwise would not happen. Well, a few months ago, we did this show from the Mobile Airbus facility, and it was amazing the energy that you could feel in the whole region. They also said that they expected that when they build their new lines there, that Mobile will be the second largest facility producing aircraft in the world. That's pretty amazing for the city of Mobile. Let's take out your crystal ball now. Let's pretend it's 2029 and the new airport has been operating for just over five years. How do you think air service in Mobile is going to be different? Chris, let's both answer that. You go first. How will air service be different? Well, we currently uh, leak about 55% of our traffic. And the only carriers that serve our airports are the legacy carriers, Delta, American United. What I see in five years is Mobile moving closer to a city like Savannah in air service, that not only do we have the legacy carriers, but we do have some ultra low cost carriers, which will give our customers many options. Uh, We currently have about 750,000 people that use our airport on an annual basis. I think within the first five years, we'll capture at least 30% of our 55% leakage. So I think we'll be over a million passengers that are using the airport. And they'll be happy customers as well because they won't have to drive as far to get good air service. You know, when I think about success and what it will be looking like, our hope is, is that in relative terms, that we hope that the airfares are lower or competitive with our competition that we have more direct flights than we currently have, and that spinning off of that, that we will have you know increased economic uh, development and jobs. So from a citizen standpoint, it's gonna be uh, a quality of life issue for, for our citizens and for our community. So I would add that to what Chris has already said. Well, we are gonna watch this project very closely. We wish you the best of luck. And we hope to get down to Mobile and maybe do a show at your opening of the new airport in 2024. What do you say to that? <laughs> You've got the invitation, okay? I'll send it to you on a gold-plated platter if you need for me to. <laughs> we would love to have you here. 
Well, Mr. Mayor and Chris, thanks for the time to talk to us about this. This is an exciting project to learn more about. And again, thank you for your support, Mr. Mayor, uh, during the Carnival Cruise Line downturn that uh, you were you were always an advocate for us and a great partner and you continue to be so we look forward to many many more years of partnership there so we're also expecting chris for you to have some of those carnival cruisers fly into mobile to get on the ship rather than driving in that's a deal that's a deal <laughs> so, well, thank good. You very much mr mayor thank you very much chris you got a lot of work ahead of you to make this work we wish you godspeed with that and we will be right back with more airlines confidential promotional consideration by the archive.net the hub of the history of commercial aviation the archive.net is now boarding this portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Sidley Austin. From the ramp to the boardroom, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies transforming the skies. Well, some good stuff from Mayor Stimson and Chris Curry. Now we'll take a couple of our listener questions. Remember, you can email us your questions via our mailbox at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts. Chris, our first question is from Tom in Detroit. He writes, Hi, Chris and Ben. What is your prediction for the U.S. carrier's December schedule integrity? Pilots are flying higher than average hours to cover the summer schedule. Will this bite the carriers at the end of the year with the 1,400-hour cap? So, Tom, good question. Thanks for writing in. Let's back up just a bit. U.S. regulations cap commercial pilot flight time on a daily, quarterly, and annual basis. So, for example, actual flight time is limited to 500 hours in a calendar quarter or 800 hours in any two consecutive quarters and 1,400 hours total in any calendar year. So, Ben, I asked our friend and airline labor relations expert Jerry Glass about this prospect uh, that Tom raises. And he advises that this could impact some smaller carriers, but the issue with the large carriers is really more of a training logjam slash backlog. He doesn't think it will be completely solved by the end of the year, but it will be much better than it was this summer as the same training bubble has impacted pilot crew availability for much of the late spring and summer as pilots were hitting their caps in conjunction with these training bubbles. So... I'm guessing there are going to be some exceptions, and I'm sure some of our listeners who are pilots can tell us that on an individual basis, they've hit their quarterly cap this year, or they're on track to hit 1,400 hours by mid-December. So I'm not dismissing that possibility, but Jerry's thoughts are on a more macro level, it's the training, not the duty cap, that has been the most disruptive and uh, continues to be the key factor for the time being. Jerry's got this right, Chris. Also, when you think about the fourth quarter in a pre-pandemic time or before time, as some people are calling it, October and November were relatively lower load factor months, really driven by the business demand that was largely driven by trade shows and conventions in that time. Then as you get into Thanksgiving in the U.S. and then second half of December in the multiple ways that the world celebrates the end of the year, you get these peaks. But those peaks, 
aren't like the sustained peak of the summer. So even airlines that are under pressure can usually find ways to staff what are more controllable peaks. Thanksgiving, for example, in the U.S. isn't a long calendar period. There's really only a couple of days where the travel is very, very heavy, even though that's been spreading out some. And in the end of December, it's peaky, but it's not like July, And so after airlines have come through this summer, they've used a lot of crews. I don't think, like Jerry said, that there's the risk of lots of pilots hitting their 1,400-hour annual max. And airlines, I think, are just going to be better at managing both their capacity and their crew planning at sort of the peakish times that are just a little more manageable. Yeah, that that those are good ads, Ben. I was reading somewhere that American was already starting to thin out their September October schedule by canceling select flights, and I think you're going to see that continually into the fall. Um, especially if this demand that we keep talking about doesn't materialize, you're not going to be wanting to fly empty flights with on routes with lots of frequency. You go from eight to six or whatever it might be. And take into account those peak days, like you said, around Thanksgiving and the holidays at the end of the year. Let's watch that, though. Good good question, Tom. Um, we've experienced too many of these disruptions uh, the past 12, 18 months. Uh, ben, since we just wrapped up quarterly earnings, this other question is timely as well. It's from Derek in Dallas, and I'm pretty sure it's not American Airlines CFO Derek Kerr because he probably knows the answer. Hey, guys, an earnings season it's upon us again. I have a question about Chasm. Spirit and Frontier always brag about their Chasm advantage over the legacy carriers. The legacies are often two and a half times more costly when compared to the ultra-low-cost carriers. Chasm, of course, referring to costs per available seat mile. Is that legacy Chasm including business class seats? If so, what do you think the Chasm is of a legacy economy seat compared to an ultra-low-cost carrier seat? since that would really be shaped by the target customer. I have a hard time believing sitting in the back of an American Airbus 321 is that much more than spirit. Thanks for your answer. It's a great question, Derek, and it's a somewhat complicated question. I think your intuition is kind of right. If you compare the cost of an American coach seat to a Spirit or Frontier seat, it doesn't look as wide a gap as when you look at the total chasm. Now, chasm is cost per available seat mile. So when you have the business class seats, there are fewer seats traveling those miles. So the denominator is lower and that pushes up the cost of the legacy somewhat. But there still is a big difference. The difference comes just from the complication or simplicity of the business models. I can't stress enough that complications in an airline always equal costs. So at an airline like American, what their seat in an A321 has to cover is 
all the costs that American incurs to try to attract business traffic, for example, that might mean having segregated counters at the airport to have special check-in for certain customers. That means more real estate at the airport. It might mean having more complicated IT and training at the airport. They may need to know, for example, that I, because I bought a very expensive ticket, can check my bag in for free. But Chris, who bought a really cheap ticket, they can't print a bag tag until they've confirmed payment for that bag. That creates IT complication and training complication. So those are just examples of how the search for business revenue or trying to be attractive to business revenue creates costs all across the airline. And all those costs have to be divided by all the ASMs produced by an American Airlines. So while while the coach seat on American might not be two and a half times more costly than a ULCC, it's still more costly because everything they do is more expensive, largely because the airline is much more complicated. You got that, Derek? Good question. Uh, ben, thanks for the, the tutorial. So. <laughs> uh, time to wind things down with our shout outs. I'm going to give kind of a lookout. Shout out. I'm not going to make judgment just yet, but we're in the opening innings of a 90-day public comment period at the U.S. Department of Transportation. They are proposing a rule to require refunds, not necessarily flight credits, but refunds, for certain extended delays or cancellations. We'll talk more about this on a future show, but everyone should watch this carefully. We have to watch this one carefully for sure. And like many regulations, they can have unintended consequences also. And we'll talk about those if we see the risk of that happening somewhat. Chris, my shout out goes to Akaska Air. Now, who is Akaska, you say? Well, it's the newest airline in India. It's a brand new airline. India is a very dynamic marketplace, very large marketplace. And now with this new carrier promising to be a ULCC kind of business model, it's going to put some pressure on all the carriers in India, which is already a very price sensitive market. But it's great for the millions of Indians who travel every day, great for a very dynamic market and great for competition. So go Akaska. Well, the wheels are about ready to hit the runway, so we're going to sign off. Everyone have a good week, and thanks for listening. Have a great week, everyone. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.